You can make an argument that there's been no faction within the Missouri General Assembly that's received more attention and more scorn than the six-person conservative caucus. One member of that Senate stable is Senator Bill Eigel, a St. Charles County Republican who has a lot to say about the direction of state government. Eigel joins us next on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about the 2019 session and what's ahead in 2020 for his conservative colleagues. Let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today is my co-host... Julia O'Donohue. Joining us from Jefferson City, our state house reporter... Jacqueline Driscoll. And joining us... In studio in St. Louis, uh, the senator for the 23rd District. State Senator Bill Igel. We're going to spend a, a lot of time talking about the Conservative Caucus, which is the colloquial name for about, what is it, six senators who mm-hmm. have gotten a lot of attention over the last six or seven months. I think I'm just going to start off. A lot of people listening to the show know what the Conservative Caucus is. They might have read about it in the newspaper on stlpublicradio.org. But what is the Conservative Caucus and what are some guiding principles behind it? Well, the Conservative Caucus came together uh, prior to last session because there were some specific conservative policies that we really wanted to fight for, to uh, spend our political capital on. And we found the best way to do that was to get some uh, similar like-minded folks uh, that could focus on a certain number of priorities, all of which have been taken from the Missouri Missouri GOP platform, and specifically highlight uh, issues like tax reform. You know, I've talked about cutting taxes for as long as I've been in office, and that's an area that we don't feel like has gotten enough attention. Uh, Education reform, putting more choice in the hands of parents is something that uh, we don't feel like has gotten enough attention, and we want to uh, spend more time talking about these issues and getting them passed. And really, you know, fiscal matters, as it relates to the budget. You know, I've spoken at length about how, uh, in spite of having supermajorities, we have a budget that gets bigger every year. And there's a lot of areas of our budget that I think that we can be more efficient on. What, what goes into your mindset about what to stand up on? I know we've talked a lot about how the Conservative Caucus decided to stand up on the governor's economic development workforce development package. There are other bills that you may have voted no on, like there was a bill about stadium incentives that I think all of you voted against, but you didn't filibuster. So, like, what goes into thinking about what you're going to really take a stand on and which you're just going to vote no on but let pass? Well, I got to be honest, Jason, there are days I wish I could stand up on a lot more. Uh, Unfortunately, we have limited, each of us have a limited amount of capital that we can spend, and we try to identify the biggest issues that are coming before the body and really dedicate our efforts. You mentioned that the stadium bill, it feels like for the past two years before this year, uh, it was me and a couple other folks that were pushing back against that bill. But when we looked at all the different things that we wanted to have more of an voice on this year, we tried to focus on things that you you typically hear uh, Republicans talk about during campaign season and then maybe take a different direction once they're down in Jefferson City. And those are a lot of the economic and fiscal issues. We talk about 
wanting to have less government. Well, having less government means that we can't continue to support a lot of what I term as the corporate welfare bills, a lot of the spending bills, a lot of the expansion of government bills. And that's where we really tried to, to hone in on for this past session. How would you respond to maybe some not huge fans of the conservative caucus that feel like you all haven't been super effective. Like I would argue you were effective on like the bridge bill because you added some caveats to it, which you're probably about to explain. But on the aforementioned economic development, workforce development bill, a lot of people think that you filibustered for 28 hours and didn't get a whole lot. Mm -hmm. what, what would you say? What would you say to that? Well, our, our number one priority this session was the heartbeat bill. And uh, if you recall, less than uh, 36 hours after uh, that filibuster ended re in relation to the economic development bill, the heartbeat bill did pass. So I think that was part of the discussion that we had to ask ourselves in spite of our uh, objections to the, the, the GM bill. Um, we, we wanted to turn the discussion to something that we were passionate about, and that is protecting life here in the state of Missouri. And I think that the conservative caucus was instrumental in getting that over the finish line. Um, and I would point to that as probably one of the biggest successes of any Republican initiative. So uh, we've been able to get big legislation. It was sponsored by Andrew Koenig, who is a member of the conservative caucus, and we did get that over the finish line. So uh, a lot of times when you stand up and you talk for a long time, uh, there, there are a lot of folks that are trying to kind or armchair quarterback what you're doing, but we were able to get our biggest priority over the finish line in terms of legislation. And I think that we certainly had our voices heard uh, when it came to uh, economic incentive deals. And I think that'll carry over to future sessions. What is the agenda for the Conservative Caucus going into 2020? I mean, there were things that passed in the 2019 session that were, were pretty major, both mm -hmm. to <clears throat> non-conservative caucus people and conservative caucus people but there were there were things that didn't end up making over the finish line right what what do you think will happen next year and what would you like to see pass next year well i think we need to have a broader conversation on education reform some of the things that you you're probably aware of that uh, got discussion but didn't make it over the finish line was a conversation about charter school expansion which i've been the sponsor of every year i've been in the uh in the Missouri Senate. I want to have a further conversation about educational savings accounts, which we actually did get through the Missouri Senate in my first year, but we haven't been able to move it that far as well. So there's education reform, I think, is absolutely going to be a priority. Uh, also on our priority list is to have a conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, about Clean Missouri, and if we're going to put some further message in front of the voters concerning Clean Missouri. And just before you continue, Clean mm -hmm. Missouri is a ballot initiative that passed in 2018. It was multifaceted, but I think what you're going to be discussing is the new state legislative redistricting system that was on that. A lot of times I get the, the question of, well, how can you oppose something that was supported by 60% of the Missouri public? And I always say the same answer, and that is, I'm not sure what they said yes to, uh, because in a, in a realm where the Constitution says we're only supposed to have a single subject on anything that goes in front of the, the people of Missouri, we had everything from contribution limits to uh, redistricting changes to sunshine law changes. I don't know what the people of Missouri said yes to. So we need to go back in there and take a look at that. A lot of the folks I talked to were not aware of the extensive changes and negative changes that we made to our redistricting. Uh, process that I think will favor the few over the many. So we're going to go, we're going to take a look at that and see if there's a better way to put this in front of the people. There's a ballot initiative circulating. I actually saw it circulating within the House chamber um, during special and veto session. But the, the initiative is to expand Medicaid. Do you have a reaction to that? 
Yes, my reaction is uh, expanding Medicaid would be one of the most fiscally irresponsible decisions that could be made for the state of Missouri, uh, maybe in the history of the state. Uh, Medicaid right now is the largest program we have in the state budget. It takes up about 40% of our budget and it has grown dramatically faster than any other aspect of our government in the past 20 years. Uh, we had a report come out this year that, that found that we in addition to it being the largest program, it's probably also one of our most wasteful programs and has maybe a billion dollars annually of waste going into that government program. So when you have a broken program that's inefficient and doesn't serve the consumer well, the last thing you want to do is make that program bigger than it already is. And that's what precisely uh, expanding Medicaid under Obamacare would do. So I am strongly opposed to that. I think that would put uh, the state legislature and the folks down in Jefferson City in a terrible position to try to make the best of what would be a, a horrible fiscal move. And I, I think it's uh, I think it's moving us in the wrong direction. Playing devil's advocate, we've heard a lot of Democrats say that this would actually be a cost saving mechanism because they're drawing down, you know, millions from the federal government. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my response to that is I'm, I, I don't think that they can point to another state which has expanded Medicaid that has seen any savings in their Medicaid program as a result of expanding that particular program. And when we talk about taking money from the federal government, I would point out a couple things. One, we have a balanced budget requirement here in the state of Missouri, but we still get 40% of our dollars from Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C., prints or borrows a third of the money that they're getting into their pot to send to us. So with Missouri now ranking in the top 10 of most dependent states in the union for the federal government to help them balance their budget, expanding our reliance on Washington, D.C. is a bad idea. I'm not for it, and I think that we ought to be looking for ways to make Missouri more independent from the politicians down in Washington, D.C., and the, precisely the wrong thing to do would be to expand a program that gives the federal government more power over the policies in the state of Missouri than any other program. So uh, there's a lot not to like about expanding Medicaid. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do uh, making the current program we have more efficient. From a political standpoint, though, you may not have a choice if the ballot initiative passes. And I guess my question is, do you feel like there's any discussion again amongst people who are, uh, you know, philosophically opposed to Medicaid like yourself, but also don't want something forced on them where they have no control over what the program looks like? Because there are some conservative states, Utah most recently, they have adopted Medicaid, and they've had some control over what the program looks like, like, for example, having work requirements, what have you? Well, a couple thoughts. One, and I don't think that you meant it when you said it this way, I'm not opposed to Medicaid. I think there is a proper role of government to help those that are less, less fortunate. Yeah, I but, apologize. But yeah, I just want to make that clear. Uh, and, and certainly, I want to make sure that we're doing that as, as efficient as possible and not wasting uh, any taxpayer dollars, which is by far my, my biggest concern. As far as not having input into the process, I can tell you that the IP right now, just as an example, since you mentioned it, was you're, you're right about work requirements for Medicaid. Right now, it would prohibit any changes uh, in its current format. And right now, that Medicaid expansion IP is being driven by a couple of the more powerful special interests down in Jefferson City right now. And uh, those special interests uh, have currently have good relationships 
uh, with the folks down in Jefferson City. But these are the kind of policy initiatives that I think betray those relationships that they have. And if they continue to pursue that, uh, there could be consequences to those relationships far outside just the Medicaid expansion discussion. And can you, you say what those special interests are? Like, I feel like we need to identify yeah, our I, listener. I, I know what they are, but I want you to say it. I think that if you look at the Missouri Hospital Association just put in a, a quarter of a million dollars uh, into backing this effort. Now, the Hospital Association is, something, is, a, is a special interest that has had uh, a lot of success moving some of their initiatives uh, through the legislature down in Jefferson City. I, I actually met with them earlier this week, and I let them know that I see their support of Medicaid expansion as a betrayal of their relationship with the Republican brand. So, you know, that we're, we're, there's a lot of conversations that, that need to still be had. And Medicaid expansion puts this state in a terrible position. Uh, those that are supporting that, uh, that type of policy, I think they're not going to find a whole lot of agreement, uh, not just with the conservative caucus, but with the Republican caucus. So we'll continue to have that conversation, but um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. You've spoken several times uh, about the Medicaid program here in Missouri, calling it, you know, a, a very fast growing, calling it very inefficient. Can you just explain some of those inefficiencies? Sure. Um, I, I feel like I'm hearing different things from different people about this Medicaid situation. And again, being new to the state, I, I would like to hear your perspective on what you feel is inefficient about the program. Sure. Well, the, the first thing, I don't know if you're familiar with this, the McKinsey report, uh, the McKinsey Institute, we paid several million dollars to have them do a report and look into the Medicaid program that we have here in the state of Missouri. They published the report earlier this year and that found that we have up to a billion dollars of waste in how we administer the program just under current format and current law here in the state of Missouri. What, what I have done uh, is, and along with a few of my colleagues, if we, we have charged the director of Medicaid, which is former House Speaker Todd Richardson, with coming to us with a plan before next session of what it looks like to capture some of those savings, uh, given that we may have so much room to maneuver with just the program we already have on the table. So I'm looking forward to those results and how we're, we're going to implement those in the coming years. And I think we're gonna get an answer to that prior to the session starting. So that's part of it, but just having an outside organization confirm that we have that much waste should really get a lot of folks' attention before we talk about expanding that particular program. I also want to see more controls put on, you know, making sure that the people being serviced by the program are eligible to be in that program in the first place. So I think we've got some work to do there. And until we address what's wrong uh, as far as how we're administering what we can do in the program, it's hard to fix it. We'll be right back after this short message with Senator Bill Eigel. And we're back with Senator Bill Eigel of St. Charles. We're going to talk about uh, whether or not there should be restrictions on guns. Jacqueline, I'm going to let you kick this topic off. We heard a lot about gun control, especially as um, uh, the Missouri led into the special and veto session. Democrats wanted um, the topic of gun control on the table. Um, we've seen uh, severe gun violence in St. Louis and Kansas City. Recently, Governor Parsons went to um, St. Louis and released his crime plan. I'm wondering if you have any reaction to the details that he um, was able to give about, you know, more officers and he is going to designate some money to victims of violent crime in St. Louis. Sure. Uh, let's let me go through this one step at a time. First of all, uh, when it comes to the gun control of a general nature, I've been a strong supporter of the Second Amendment and our right to bear arms. I don't think that because of the criminal actions of the few that we should be trying to figure out ways to take the personal liberties and rights of the many. 
And I think, unfortunately, that's what's happening in this gun control debate. Um, so I'm generally very hesitant about ideas that I don't think are actually going to solve the problem when it comes to just restricting and taking away people's guns or guns accessories. Now, then you also asked about the governor's plan. And when I look at trying to solve the problems in St. Louis and Kansas City, I look at it in two versions, the short term and the long term. In the short term, I'm very supportive of what the governor said. I think that stepping up certain law enforcement mechanisms uh, in certain targeted areas of the city uh, and having a better presence there, I'm supportive of that. I think that's moving in the right direction in the short term. In the long term, however, especially in, in St. Louis, we need to be asking ourselves, what are the root causes of all this crime down there in St. Louis City? And it's not guns, it's the lack of economic opportunity. If people can't find a job, if they can't, if they're not free to pursue their dreams and goals, they are more likely to pursue a life of crime, which has all of the un bad negative consequences that a lot of my Democratic colleagues are talking about. But they're not talking about fixing those economic uh, problems. They're just talking about taking away people's rights. I think that's a losing message politically. And I think that functionally, that's not going to get us anywhere. What we need to do is ask ourselves, you know, why is St. Louis City the fastest shrinking city in the country? What's driving that? Well. They have a lot of policies and they have a ton of government down in St. Louis City that is strangling economic opportunity, that's strangling economic growth. And if we don't address those, taking taking the rights away from a majority of law-abiding citizens, that, that's not going to change anything. The Legislative Black Caucus did have a meeting with Governor Parson before um, special session, and they talked about how Governor Parson showed support for these what they called wraparound services, what you just mentioned, to um, you know provide economic growth, provide jobs, um, in essence, to deter people from violent crime. But Governor Parson has also said that he would be in favor of certain um, red flag laws or increasing background checks. Is that something that you could get on board with? Well, and I don't want to speak for the governor or try to uh, directly respond to that, but I can tell you where I stand on that. I'm a no on red flag laws. I'm a no on expanding more restrictions to folks' Second Amendment rights. Taking away the rights that are specified in the Constitution that are certain unalienable rights is the wrong way to go and misses the target. Trying to address the tools uh, of by which crimes are committed is not going to fix the problem. It would be it would be like trying to combat obesity in our society by banning forks. It doesn't work, and it folk it misses the entire point of the underlying problems of violence in down in our communities. Taking away certain tools in this case could be rifles, could be guns, doesn't take away the evil in man's hearts. Uh, in men's hearts to commit these type of crimes. What we need to focus on is how can we make St. Louis City stronger economically and our region stronger economically so that people are naturally inclined to be a more productive part of our society. Uh, and until we get to that conversation, I don't think we're going to make any progress. So I, I, I have heard these calls, whether it's from the Black Caucus or from its, from its my Democratic colleagues, I am never going to be a part of an effort to curtail people's rights. We've heard uh, calls from St. Louis, the St. Louis mayor uh, and the mayor in Kansas City to essentially allow different um, cities to have their own types of gun laws. So St. Louis specifically, they wanted to have it mandated that if you were carrying, you had to have a license to do so. Would that be something you would support? 
You know, I've noticed whenever a local area has a disagreement with the state government, they try to portray the issue as some sort of local control issue. Here's where I stand on particular issues like that. The state's responsibility is to block the overreach of the federal government in Washington, D.C., and it's also to block the overreach of local governments within the state of Missouri that have gotten beyond the bound of what we consider acceptable. Anytime you have an entity, whether it's coming from D.C. or it's coming from somewhere in Missouri that is treading upon the rights of the citizens, my expectation is that the state government will step in and put a stop to it. We did that a couple years ago in the minimum wage debate, and I, if, if it comes down to it on the issue of guns rights, then I expect that we'll have an input there. So I, I'm, I think that the folks in St. Louis City and in Kansas City are missing the point and missing and going the wrong direction of how to address these issues. Well, we've talked a lot about like what Democrats want on the issue and painting it as a Democrat-Republican issue. I kind of want to twist it around a little bit because when Jacqueline and I were talking with your Republican colleague, Senator Lincoln Huff, he had this to say specifically about open carry in public places and as well as the prospect of background checks. We had in the city of Springfield an issue not too many weeks ago where an individual walked into a Walmart with body armor on and uh, a rifle that most people would consider uh, insightful of public panic. And you can't, I'm sorry, but that's just not, that's not okay in, in, the, in the world that we live in today. And I think uh, our prosecutor in Greene County, uh, and I won't get his quote exactly right, but said something to the effect of, your Second Amendment right doesn't give you the right to incite panic in the public. Okay? And I think Dan Patterson's exactly right. So I would hope that uh, when we come back in January, there can be some conversations about uh, maybe, it's, maybe it is background checks uh, that are a little more strict. If you go into a gun store and they do a background check on you, why would that be objectionable? How is that infringing on somebody's Second Amendment right if certain people, especially who are felons, shouldn't be getting guns in the first place? Well, again, it, our intention of protecting rights should not be confused with efforts to deny felon folks that don't have, uh, a, you know, that have a legitimate reason not to have a gun, whether because they're a felon or what have you. But again, the entire conversation is kind of spun of, how are we going to address violence by additional gun control measures? That's the wrong conversation. What we ought to be focusing, if we really want to try to address violence in our inner cities, is how do we get those cities the economic opportunity that they don't have right now? Every minute that we spend talking about gun control as the solution is a minute that we're not spending talking about how do we fix the economic problems in these cities that are the actual root causes. The, 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 the guns being... Uh, sold at, an, at, a, at a show, those aren't the underlying issues of why St. Louis City is shrinking right now. St. Louis is shrinking right now because folks in St. Louis City don't find economic opportunity there. They're either moving away or they're not prospering where they stay. So why don't we spend our time Address, addressing those issues, you know, and, and as far as my, you know, any of my colleagues are, are welcome to take up the banner of uh, fighting against people having rights, uh, whether it's the Second Amendment or otherwise. And this certainly wouldn't be the first time that I disagreed with Lincoln Huff. We also disagreed on uh, the in-state tuition levels for illegal immigrants. And I think we have a disagreement on whether or not we should even have an electoral college in the, in the United States. I think we do. So, you know, there's, there's contrast within the Republican Party, and I understand that. And uh, he's welcome to have as many conversations about taking away people's rights as he'd like to. But 
I just don't think that's going to get a lot of traction. There's a high rate of suicide in Missouri, and many of those suicides are carried out with a firearm. Mm -hmm. I guess my question is, how do we how do we deal with the question of people who are mentally ill who maybe shouldn't have a have a gun? It's it's a difficult question with people who are mentally ill on all sorts of civil rights issues. Do you have an idea of what we should be doing with the issue on that front? And I'm talking about people who are going to be a danger to themselves or others, like how we should be managing that. Well, we have mechanisms at the state and the local level already that are in place uh, to assist, to take care of folks that are uh, suffering from mental anxiety. In fact, uh, again, in our in our welfare and our Medicaid programs, mental health is a huge part of that. So we're already doing uh, we're already taking those steps with record amounts of government to do it. You know, you mentioned uh, suicide, uh, which is interesting. Here's how I think of suicide, and I often connect the suicide de debate uh, or the suicide problem to the abortion problem. Suicide and abortion come from the same lie, and that is that some people don't matter. And I'm often struck by the fact that many of my Democratic colleagues who are trying to spin the uses of government to combat the tragedy of suicide, on the other hand, turn a blind eye to the same lie that's ending many other lives when it comes to abortion. So I'm, I'm against bo both of those. I have supported measures within the legislature just through our budget bills that are trying to address by both of those issues. I don't think the answer though for government is to come in and look to try to solve problems by taking away people's rights. It misses the objective, it misses the mark. What we should be asking ourselves, what can government do to improve the economic status of Missouri, and that will lead to the better outcomes we're looking for. I have a two-part question here really quick, and the first question is easy. It's just a yes or no, but I, I feel like you've said this. I just want to hear it. Do you think gun laws in the state should change? I have not seen, no. No. Okay. So <laughs> I almost gave you a longer answer, but uh, you wanted a yes or no. That's okay. Easy enough. I follow. I want to follow up with that because Speaker Har has said that there will be a legislative package to address some of the violence within the state, particularly with gun control. He didn't give any details right now. It's just a couple um, members looking into statistics and researching. But what would you like to see included in that package? Well, again, when I look at trying to address our, our inner urban areas, I look at it from an economic perspective. And many of the things that are in the Republican brand, the conservative caucus brand, are things that will address the economies of our most populous areas of our state. By getting rid of government and taxation, by moving us to a state that doesn't have an income tax, we're going to bring in more population. And when you have population growth, I, I used to run a small business and I used to say when I ran the small business that if you have sales, everything else can be fixed. Well, in the realm of geopolitics, if you have population growth, if people want to move to where you are and they're willing to bring their families and their investment and their new ideas and their innovation, everything else can be fixed. There's nothing that can't be addressed by the rising tide of economic opportunity in this state. So I'm hoping that the discussion is going to go far beyond just the law enforcement end of the spectrum and is going to really talk about the underlying economic challenges that the city of St. Louis has suffered uh, because they've had pretty much one party rule for a long time. And clearly they're not getting the results uh, that they're looking for. If they want state help, to fix that problem, then we need to bend the conversation to what type of economic principles do we need to instill in these areas to get them moving and growing again. In the last few minutes, I want to talk
talk about a little more about efforts to grow the conservative caucus. Sure. Um, I know there's not like an official PAC, but there is a PAC that's kind of loosely associated with electing more conservative people called the CL PAC, which I think stands for Conservative Leadership PAC. That's correct. And uh, it's received a large donation recently from David Stewart, who's the, I guess the, I don't know if he's the founder of Worldwide Technology, but he certainly is well associated with it. And it started uh, supporting other PACs that are going to be supporting candidates who I presume would want to join the conservative caucus. So that is a backdrop. What do you think is the end game? Like, what are you trying to accomplish by getting more members? Is it to be a bigger force in blocking legislation? Is it to like elect a member of the conservative caucus in Senate leadership? Is it a combination of all those things? Well, first of all, I, I, like when we first started the interview, mm. the conservative caucus is a group of like-minded individuals that really wanna focus on the issues of liberty and con fiscal conservative policy in addition to the social policies that have already bound the Republicans for the past 15 to 20 years. So getting more voices in the Missouri Senate and the Missouri House is certainly a, an objective of the conservative caucus. Uh, how that translate, which races, I think is, is that's that's we probably don't have time to go through each of those. No, however, we don't. What I, <laughs> however, what I what I will say is that the message that we have within the conservative caucus of these founding economic, fiscally responsible principles combined with our strong social credentials of fighting for things like uh, our Second Amendment rights and the pro-life movement uh, is very appealing to members of the Republican community, not just the, the folks that can write big checks, but at a grassroots level. I think there's a tremendous amount of interest in supporting that particular brand. I think the conservative caucus right now is promoting, and I said this earlier, precisely the brand that elects Republicans in the first place, and that is Republicans have always been elected as the reformers of broken government institutions. If we get away from that, the more we get away from that brand, not just from what we're saying in the campaign, season, but what we're doing when we have power and we're in Jefferson City, the danger that's a danger to the Republican Party. The fact that we're getting checks, that we're getting resources to back up our effort is an indication that, that our message is successful, not just with the grassroots, but the donor community as well. Well, I want to ask about David Stewart because mm -hmm. I've followed his donation patterns for a long time, and he actually gives somewhat equally to Democrats as well as Republicans. Mm -hmm. Not anymore, obviously, when you give a million dollars to the conservative caucus, it's probably leaning more to the Republicans. I don't, I've never spoken to David Stewart. I don't know what his mindset is. I know worldwide technology is somewhat integrated with state and local governments because they occasionally contract with both of them. Do you have any sense of like why he has decided to donate to that pack? Well, and, and I want to be real careful because I don't want to try to use my platform as a state senator to, to speak for someone else. Yeah, I understand. Uh, I have had conversations with him, though, and what he the feedback that I have taken from those meetings is that he's a strong pro-life guy, and he appreciates boldness when it comes to these issues. Getting the heartbeat bill passed in the Missouri Senate this year uh, and, and making Missouri one of the few states that have passed one of the most restrictive abortion measures in the country, I think is a great example of the kind of boldness that not only David Stewart, but a lot of folks in Missouri are looking for from their Republican representatives. And I, and I have made the case here, I think the conservative caucus was instrumental in those efforts. Now, every individual has interest in more than just one item. And, you know, David, he's a, he's a strong businessman. He's been great for our he community. He was big in the Title IX debate as well. He was big was, in the, he was, was he was interested in that. Admittingly. But at, at the same time, 
when we're talking about fighting for lower taxes and less regulation, that is something that appeals to a broad cross-section of folks in this state. And if the feeling is the conservative caucus are the ones that are going to be bold enough to seize that initiative and be willing to go out there and take a stand, I think that's something that's going to be able to build coalitions. Are you concerned about the perception of a a, a PAC associated with a conservative caucus taking a million dollars from a government contractor? I mean, I could see where some people might look at that with a skeptical eye, like you say you want to limit government, but you're taking money from someone who fundamentally makes money off of government. You know, it's funny, a lot of folks that have reached that level of success have seem to have some connection to government one, in one way, shape, or form. And it's hard, it's hard to have that much success and not do some business with the government because there's so much government in our lives now. Uh, anybody that's inclined to look at politics and say, well, those folks are corrupt and any connection they have to anybody that's either has a government contract and is giving money to government, if they're inclined to say that about us, there's not a whole lot I can do. In fact, it's an unfortunate situation that I think confidence in elected officials is lower uh, than it ever has been before. Part of the reason is because we're losing transparency on where some of this money is going. You know, we talked about Amendment 2. Uh, Jason, now you and I talked about that. In 2016, you were very uh, foresighted on what would happen. You know, Amendment 2, which was which sets campaign contributions limit limits here in the state of Missouri, really just led to the rise of all these PACs. And it made it more difficult for people to understand where the money's coming from. And we had a te great template to, to understand where this was going to happen, because if you look at D.C., who also... You know, Washington has uh, campaign contribution limits in there. There's been no limit on the amount of money going into politics. Spending money, whether it's on politics or otherwise, is a part of folks' free speech rights to be engaged in the process. So I have, I, I, I am very comfortable uh, on our message of lesser government and being bold about conservative solutions, building coalitions that can help us get our message out. So, you know, I. I'm not inclined. I, I've been a successful business guy uh, before I was in politics. I'm not worried about those type of connections because I'm that confident in our message. Thank you very much for joining us today for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Fred Ehrlich is the politics editor at St. Louis Public Radio. Shula Newman is the executive editor. And John Larson is our sound engineer. How can people follow you on Twitter, Julie? J.S. O'Donohue. Follow Jacqueline on Twitter at? Driscoll NPR. And you can follow the senator on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web at? At Bill Eigel on Twitter. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long.